Welcome to the Peak Provider NDIS podcast. My name is Chris Hall, your host, and today I have the honor of having the Chief Operating Officer and Company Secretary of Aruma, no less, on the line. Now, her name is Tiffany Roxborough, um, like Edinburgh, Roxborough, um, and uh, Tiffany um, has been working in the organization for many years now, but she has a very interesting background, um, including both accountancy and mining. So I love kind of picking the brains of people that are working in the NDIS that have got these different types of backgrounds because it often brings a very unique perspective. So uh, Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, so like, let, let's zone in on this, okay? So you've got, with the mining background in particular, um, I would imagine that, you know, I've not worked in that sector directly, but I'd imagine that safety is absolutely crucial. Um, and, you know, having had a chat with your colleague before this recording, um, I learned about um, Aruma's uh, project called Project Zero, um, which I believe is focusing on staff incidents. Now, um, you know, having worked in the NDIS for many years now, I think that it's quite unfortunate, isn't it, that across the industry, sometimes support workers might almost expect sometimes to get injured. Um, and it, it's not great that they have that expectation. It can make them maybe not feel safe to go to work. There's all the sort of uh, implications of that. Um, so could you just sort of unpack what is Project Zero all about? Because um, I'm fascinated to hear about this from you know, with your mining background and um, yeah, and what the project is in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, you're right about the mining industry and um, safety being a number one priority. And it was actually quite interesting um, when I moved to the disability industry to, to see a very different culture in uh, with respect to safety. It was almost not discussed, whereas, it, you know, in the mining industry, it's the opening of every meeting and the top priority for every organisation. Um, also learning that in the human Sec, uh, human services sector, it's one of the worst performing sectors, um, according to Safe Work Australia. And you know, that's really quite alarming that so many people are getting injured at work. Um, but I guess when I reflect on the journey through the mining industry, mining wasn't always that best in class example of safety leadership. And if you reflect back to the 80s, there were significant injuries and fatalities on mine sites. And, and it took a real cultural shift um, at that point in time. And you know, probably more than 20 years of hard leadership work to really shift the culture to get it where it is today. Mm. Um, and I do see that, that that same approach is or similar, you know, um, program of work really needs to be the focus of, of the disability industry and human services sector so that we can really shift the dial on, you know, the perception of safety and, and change that mindset from assuming it's part of the job to get injured at work to, you know, really understanding that it's not okay for any any worker to be injured. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing, because whenever one does a risk management plan, you've got the risk of something happening, and then you've got the impact, right? So like, you know, there can be something can be less likely or more likely to happen, but the impact could be low. But, you know, in, in disability, when we're talking about that, it could be, it could be exposure to, to violence, um, it could be exposure to people you know, well, it could be things like self-harm. You could be exposed to someone self-harming. You could be, um, well, lots of worse things could happen as well, right? So that there's the kind of the psychological exposure. That's one thing. That's a huge impact that can lead uh, to support workers, you know, needing um, psychological assistance in forms of therapy afterwards. And of course, there's physical injury if someone um, might be 
you know, violent towards them, for example, for any reason. So um, I guess my distinction is, it's not just the risk that's there, it's literally the impact level is huge, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And um, I guess the key focus areas for m most disability service providers have been around, you know, some of those physical injuries. So the physical impact of uh, occupational violence or the physical impact of manual handling injuries or slip trips and falls and and they're generally the the highest kind of category of incident but what we're all learning and um, you know and it, it's broader across all of Australia not just within the disability industry mm. is how important understanding the psychosocial risks of uh, the situations that can unfold um, at work have on individuals and you know, there is new legislation out regarding psychosocial risk and it absolutely is um, that emerging risk and I say emerging in terms of people's understanding and awareness of the impact that those physical situations can have uh, on people's mental health and well-being and, and not just that of the people who have the physical injury but of staff and um, participants who also are involved in those uh, circumstances and situations that unfold. It's a myriad of things, isn't it? So, I mean, for example, the term EAP, some people know what that is, some people don't. Employee assistance programs, right? That's going to be something that large organizations have in place. If you're a business owner that, you know, has that sort of perspective and um, attitude, then you may already have that in your smaller business. But I think that it's probably fair to say that maybe a good portion of smaller providers might not even know what EAP is. So like, could you maybe just speak to that and how that, you know, can benefit people if they've been experienced to, for example, a psychosocial related injury? Yeah, we, um, we certainly promote and encourage the employee assistance program uh, at Aruma and, um, and it's really quite well used and is such a valuable tool for staff to be able to access um, expert counsellors and support um, to help them debrief uh, from those incidents. And um, we, we use EAP in a number of different ways uh, at Aruma. So we will, um, you know, if there is a significant incident that our staff are exposed to, um, we'll, we'll offer EAP support, um, providing them the number that they can call and, um, and it is a free uh, service for the employee, which is great. Um, sometimes we do find that people... Um, having been through an experience, aren't always wanting to pick up the phone and make that phone call. So we um, also sometimes ask our employees whether they would like us to arrange an outbound call from EAP, um, obviously with their consent. And sometimes we find that that helps to um, people to kind of take that step to, to use that really valuable service. Um, we also use the EAP in um, group settings too. So sometimes if an incident has occurred uh, in one of our homes, um, it's really beneficial for the whole team to be able to come together and, and debrief that experience. And we've, we, we get amazing um, feedback from those um, sessions that are organised and how beneficial and helpful it is for our staff and, and how much more connected they all are as a team following those sessions too. Um, so I yeah, highly um, encourage any service provider that mm. you know, hasn't necessarily looked into the benefits of EAP to, to look into that.
Yeah, absolutely. And there are services that can be, you know, through a partnership, basically outsourced, right? It does not necessarily mean that you have to employ a counsellor, for example. I mean, it can be like, you know, you sign up to the service. It's like signing up to something like EmployShore if you want to have, you know, HR advice or legal vision for legal advice. They're all great services that can be like a subscription um, style model for for providers, right? Yeah, and I think it's also um, that that's the benefit of having it outsourced is that it is confidential. Mm. You know, nothing gets reported back to the organisation about what people discuss or um, in those sessions. It's entirely confidential, which, um, you know, is, is really valued as well by staff. What's the interrelationship of work cover in that regard? Because I suppose, like, gosh, is it, is it a fine line almost between the both, right? So, you, you know, you want to support your staff and that's why you would have EAP um suppose technically speaking if we're well, not technically if you are injured at work then it's also required that you report that isn't it and sometimes you know that could lead to someone going on to a worker compensation situation um, and sometimes it might not so what's the kind of like where are the boundaries and what's the interrelationship between EAP and basically having for example your eye care worker comp cover yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. I've never kind of made that connection before myself and maybe because we view them as really um, different kind of programs that are run and our staff are entitled to access any and every um, support that they need in terms of um, you know, injuries or incidents that might happen at work. So um then they're definitely not connected in that way that you need to lodge a workers' comp claim to be able to access um, no. the EAP. Mm. Um, and, and I guess both avenues are, are there and available for staff as they need them. And, um, you know, we, we promote EAP to really be a wellbeing program as well. Um, our EAP provider uh, also offers services um, outside of work-related matters that we encourage our staff to make use of those services too so they can raise any um, personal or private-related matter. Um, our EAP provider has experts in, um, you know, addiction, um, you know, finances, so, if, you know, particularly in this environment with increasing interest rates and um, the impact that that has on people. So there's a number of very you know non-work related supports that can be provided through that program which is also another great benefit for people that's very holistic and and, and I love that group facilitated thing because I think that could be quite relevant you know especially in sill houses for example right you know multitudes of staff have been around the incident and it causes distress um yeah for, for all people involved and um, I suppose on the of course the other side of the very important side of the equation is the impact on participants right um, so like, could you give a bit of insight as to, um, <clears throat> say for example, you know, um, of course we're all familiar with things such as reportable incidents. So if you have a reportable incident, you are formally documenting, you know, what are the recommended strategies and supports that you put in place as a result of that. So it could be, okay, we're going to book a session in with the psychologist or we're going to book in a session with the GP. Um, could you just elaborate a bit more on, you know, what, what's a rumor's point of view on that in terms of the types of supports that you immediately will offer um, to participants so that they can manage, you know, through that process. Yeah, and it, it varies for each participant or, you know, resident of our homes. Uh, and we will connect in with their support networks to, to make sure that 
their team of people who are relevant are able to um, support them. So whether that's family members, um, you know, psychologists, GP, et cetera, our staff are also really, um, you know, supportive in that approach of being able to use social stories and different tools and techniques, not that they're professionals by any means, but just to help in that understanding of, um, you know, and, and unpacking some of the situations have occurred. But it really does come down to uh, what what the participant has in their their funding, for want of a better word, or their support network themselves as to how easy it is to um, provide that much needed support for them. Mm -hmm. uh, some of our residents have, you know, wonderful support networks that are, you know, highly responsive, um, whereas other uh, other residents, are, you know, don't necessarily have those regular supports and mm. which can make it um, a little bit more challenging. Um, there are a lot of great helplines out there and, and the like that we can also refer people to and assist them mm. uh, in accessing that. But one of the biggest challenges that that exists in terms of accessing those, um, you know, free help and counselling services for, for our um participant base is we predominantly support people with an intellectual disability. Um, there can be communication challenges that, um, you know, really limit the benefit that those services can provide. Um, so one thing that we are exploring at Aruma is looking at, you know, we have an employee assistance program. What does a customer assistance program look mm. like? And how are we able to, you know, fill some of that gap for for our you know participants who don't have that support network or have um, real, you know limited communication to be able to access those free supports? Um, it's very much in its infancy, but uh, it's certainly something we feel really passionate about to make sure that you know everyone uh, is able to access the supports that they need. That's an intriguing model, isn't it? Because, you know, say, for example, on the suite of therapy supports, whether it be psychiatry, psychology, you know, all that type of stuff, if you needed that form of support after an incident, um, of course, different providers on that space can prioritise if there's, you know, something quite serious has happened, they can prioritise seeing someone, but wait lists and availability are very much a very real thing. So I think you're right, you, you kind of it's the funding question and it's also do you have an existing relationship do you see your psychologist once a month already because if so it will be a darn sight easier to get in um so i think yeah the customer assistance program concept is very intriguing um yeah on the last podcast that i did um with the ceo of next group we were talking about passionately about the idea of a national learning management system and you know thinking about like why is it that you can't have recognition of prior learning as a support worker going from one place to another and why can't we have even if it's unaccredited learning why can't we just have a common e-learning library of objects where we can say yep yeah, tick 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 you are now good for manual handling you're good for this etc like it seems crazy to me that we don't have that um, and the reason I mentioned that quick story is that your idea you know a customer assistance program gosh wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that nationally you know, at uh, the federal level and not just at the individual provider level. Oh, absolutely. And the great thing about safety is that you know, it, we all have the same, you know, desired outcome. We, we all want to look after our staff and we want to look after 
for our um, the people that we support. And so the more that we can band, to, band together as an industry mm-hmm. and work on these common challenges, um, you know, the, the better it is for, for everyone. Um, one thing that we have um, sort of really promoted through the Project Zero uh, program that we started at Aruma is that concept of um, industry connectedness. And um, so Aruma is a member of the Alliance 20 or A20. Uh, and through that, um, we, you know, we, we instigated uh, a safety working group where we held a workshop with uh, providers and really spoke openly and honestly um, and quite collaboratively around, you know, the challenges within the industry and, um, you know, and, and from that has come a regular working group of the A20, which is looking at, you know, common um, objectives. So one place that we've started is, you know, developing a CEO charter, which is really looking at getting that commitment from the very top of the organisation around the importance of safety. Um, but then other elements of what the working group is looking at is programs such as, you know, safety um, interaction programs, something that we can roll out across the whole industry so that whether you work uh, with a rumour or another provider, the way we talk about safety is consistent um, mm-hmm. across the industry and so it becomes part of just the way you do things uh, if you work in the disability industry mm-hmm. so yeah I think there is a lot of merit um, on a number of these great ideas that mm-hmm. different organizations come up with on how we can you know work together through um, industry groups to to help promote the benefit for for everyone yeah absolutely that's great to hear that through Alliance 20 you're doing such things because I think that that's the essentially the lobbying power, right? Like, yes, you've got the benefit of being the bigger organizations. You represent 10% of the entire market. So you've got the volume, um, you've got the ability and, and yeah, you've got the clout really to, to kind of make recommendations to the agency. And so I think that's powerful. Um, Okay. Look now in terms of um, your particular leadership style, you know, with your accountancy as well as mining background, um, can you tell us, you know, know, being the COO, you're in charge of a lot of people, right? Um, so like, how does your corporate for profit world impact your leadership style, um, you know, as, as COO? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I find those questions hard to answer because I just <laughs> sort of do, <laughs> do what I do, but it's a great question to make me kind of sit back and reflect on how I do what I do. And, um, it, it is definitely challenging leading, um, you know, a large team, there's, you know, approximately 6,000 people within our organisation. And, you know, my, my leadership style is very much wanting to connect with people. And, and obviously that's not possible to do <laughs> with 6,000 people on a regular basis. Um, so, yeah, I certainly like to spend my time focusing on, you know, communication in different forums. So, you know, through town halls and meetings and bringing teams of people together to connect um, in terms of, you know, making good business decisions. And But equally, I do spend a lot of my time travelling. Uh, so, yeah, I will um, take a regional approach to travelling to meet and connect with people and visit our um, the homes and you know hubs where we operate uh, and really take a listening approach so that I can understand 
you know, sort of what's working really well um, at, at our services, what's not working well, where the challenges are, and then bring that back to, um, you know, help inform decisions that are made uh, through the organisation. Um, so I do, yeah, definitely like a very collaborative style. Um, and it's interesting contrasting leadership in the for-profit industry to not-for-profit industry and, and some of my sort of experience through that space. Um, certainly in, you know, for-profit and the mining industry, um, people understand the importance of profit. <laughs> and in my former role of as CFO at Aruma, um, you know, when I started in the not-for-profit space, I was really actually quite um, uh, taken back by the way people, um, the, the connection they had with the word profit. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, people were very negative about talking about profit. It was almost that the word profit is diametrically opposed to customer outcomes. And if you focus on profit, then people would assume that you don't care about the customers. And and so that I think that culture, you know, probably is evident of, you know, the um, block funding period. And there's been a real transition that's had to come into place with the rollout of the NDIS and understanding that more consumer-led um, approach to business. And um, so, yeah, just understanding how to kind of navigate through um, that to help people understand that actually being financially sustainable is a really important element of you know, operating in the NDIS environment in the sector as a whole and certainly something that still continues to challenge many, many service providers. Absolutely. Um, I founded a charity about, gosh, 15, 10 years ago or something. Um, and I always took the attitude of I'm going to run it like a business, so to speak, in terms of the efficiencies and the returns on whatever activities we're going to do. Um, I take the same belief that money is oxygen. Um, so money is oxygen to um, get greater outcomes, better outcomes for your community of participants, right? If you need that surplus or profit um, to do that, right? To do, the, to, to do the fun stuff. If you've got a foundation or something that's associated to your main organization, well, gosh, you can only, you know, make donations if you got money to donate, you know, so it's quite important. And I think that, um, you know, who would be a hypothetical example if one is not for profit and you've got lots of accommodation going on, such as SIL, even if you don't own the houses, like I, I think it's important not just to have a solely, for example, a, a vacancy goal. You need to you need to translate that into dollar goals for a sales team, because that, that when I do consultations, that's what I always focus on as well. I say, look sales teams are sales teams not for profit or not they, they need a financial goal right you know what is that what is the plan worth annually 12 months and how can they measure it you know and they need to know exactly what your type of customers and who you know what ratios are important like they need objective goals um, in order to you know succeed so i think that sometimes my attitude is you know similar to yours it's kind of it's absolutely fine to be a not-for-profit and to be for purpose but you know it doesn't mean that we should let any inefficiencies or or money's not a dirty word, basically, you know, and um, that, that's, yeah, I, th I see it as oxygen. Um, yeah, yeah. And it helps, it, it helps to deliver great outcomes for the people we support as well. Um, you know, obviously if you're not financially sustainable, you won't be there into the future yeah. to support um, people achieve their, 
um, you know, purpose of living a great life. And mm. so it is making that connection that actually everything does link back to mm-hmm. customer outcomes. And and I think, you know, one of the other key um, importance and, and ways of sort of influencing people around understanding that, you know, profit isn't a, a dirty word is when you think about the Disability Royal Commission and all of the recommendations that are coming out of that, there's a real shift that's going to need to occur in the industry over the next 10, 20 years. And and it's going to take a lot of innovation from service providers and um, you know, others across the industry. And mm-hmm. so being able to generate a modest profit, which obviously in any not-for-profit goes back to the organisation and meeting its purpose, that's really important to make sure that we can continue to innovate into the future and, you know, deliver better services, higher quality services, you know, services that, you know, are really led by what customers want and need. Yeah, and I also think of Richard Branson. Um, like, what was I need to paraphrase him. It's something like, you know, treat people so... Um, well that they could leave at any time but then they're treated so well that they don't want to leave it's something like that you know and, and I think they're saying you know that that analogy goes for like retention right if you've actually got surplus profit um, etc um, it means you can make it have an employee assistance program otherwise you can't afford it um, and you know if you want to keep good staff then you want them to be happy in their career and their training opportunities and you know, and, and over time, the, their remuneration as well, i.e. the salaries, like you've got to be able to afford these things. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely crucial. Um, okay, so can, can you unpack it a little bit more? The 6,000 employees, it just fascinates me, like, again, how you make it happen, right? Because um, I believe that it's approximately 5,500 or more frontline and managers of the frontline, and then roughly speaking, 500, you know, office management staff. Is that is that correct, roughly in terms of the split? Yes. Yeah. Yeah amazing like do you just have lots of generals and you and you go and and and, and hang out with the generals basically <laughs> <laughs> oh, too funny um <laughs> I I do have an amazing team like I, I I do have so I do the way we structure our business is uh, we do have a, an executive general manager uh, of each of the different lines of businesses that I have, and and I might be calling them generals moving forward. But uh, <laughs> it's mum. Um, yeah, we we previously were organised based on geography, but now we're based on line of business, and the purpose of doing that is um, it, with a rumours background. We we had a number of mergers and acquisitions over a very short period of time. Uh, we took on uh, ex-New South Wales government services, uh, House With No Steps at the time had merged with the Tipping Foundation down in Victoria, uh, and then we uh, had the transfer of Victorian government services too. So we found we had four very different cultures working within the organisation um, people had different ways of doing things across, you know, based on where they'd come from. And, and it was really hard to try to get that standardisation and and one culture um, for the organisation. So, so we did restructure at a point in time away from geography to line of business to help us really focus in on our priorities of, you know, delivering consistently 
um, high quality supports for for the people we support. Um, so we have a, a home and living uh, line of business. We separately look at our community line of business. Uh, we have employment uh, and then also children's services. And mm-hmm. so each of those teams are, are structured, you know, with sort of a clear management structure that suits those purposes. And, um, you know, and I guess it's that sort of, you know, feed feed up and feed down communication through those channels to to make an impact. Um, but, but for me, like I said, I, I'm not the kind of leader that just wants to sit back in the office and, you know, kind of get reports and give directions. I mm-hmm. get so much more enjoyment out of, being on the ground um, and, and meeting people and really understanding what makes a rumour tick and how, you know, all the great feedback that people have around ways that we can continuously improve. Um, at one point in time, uh, when COVID first uh, started, I decided that you know, watching all the aged care providers where executives had to, you know, man the floor and, you know, I felt a real call to arms to undertake all of the training for a support worker so that in the event that we needed support in any of our homes, I could be available to go and assist and and actually have that training behind me. Um, I also undertook some buddy shifts as well through that program. So kind of, you know, spent a day in the life of on the ground. And and for me, those kind of experiences, like diving deeply into how, how work is done and seeing the reality of the day-to-day is just um, essential for me to be able to feel like I'm making good decisions in terms of, you know, leading the organisation forward. And um, it does take a lot of energy, <laughs> I have to say, to to travel and, you know, co- connecting with people. But I love it so much at the same time. And, yeah, don't feel that I could do my job effectively without that element of kind of diving in and, and connecting with people. Love that, love that. That kind of yeah, that that's that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, because if you can, that, that means that the decisions you make um, are based in a genuine, grounded, boots on the ground context. Literally, um, out of interest, I've got an IT background, so I can't help myself. I'm a bit of a geek. Um, are there any particular systems that Aruma uses that, that you know, in your role as COO, you're like, gosh, if we didn't have this, we we couldn't live without it. You know, are there any particular ones that stand out for you? Yeah, certainly our data analytics. So we use Power BI and, um, yeah, we're still on a journey with that as many service providers are in terms of having all your core systems working well to be able to generate the data that's of good quality to then come together uh, into a tool like Power BI. Mm -hmm. Um, But the progress we're making in that space and being able to use data as a a really valuable source of kind of guiding you as to where you need to focus your time and energy and what's working well, where are the red flags um, is absolutely, yeah, it's vital. And, um, yeah, we've been putting a lot of work into that space and, and certainly, you know, moving to setting KPIs for our managers and making sure they're clearly understood and, um, promoted through our, you know, 
regular professional development discussions that we have with our staff is another critical way of sort of being able to manage, the, you know, the, the number of people in the team and um, so having systems and tools to be able to, you know, generate those KPIs to easily have those conversations is yeah really valuable. Absolutely. I, do, I, I passionately believe that there's a, there's a meeting point where KPIs and, you know, Power BI, like think about it like a dashboard of performance. Like if you're going to drive a car down the road, you need to know, is your engine running hot? Do you need to replace the oil, the water, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's very powerful, but there's a connection point where as a synthesis, there should be a synthesis of the KPIs that you've got individually um, and how that manifests inside of the systems that you use. So if you use a CRM for sales and marketing or a client management system for you know instant reports, whatever it is, um, I feel like those systems need to be built in a way that makes sense, they're intuitive, they're, they, they competently work, they're not, there's not manual work, double ups, all that kind of stuff. They have to just work in a very well-oiled way. Um, and if those things can literally directly mirror the types of KPIs you're trying to achieve and then feed towards the dashboard, that's the nirvana, isn't it? That's the mecca um, of, of, you know, having a dashboard as an exec team, I think. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of design and smarts that go into the back of making mm -hmm. that happen. And, you know, data architects, data engineers, you know, all these roles that have been emerging as, mm -hmm. you know, everyone wants to be more data-driven in their decision-making processes. Um, you know, and I think systems has been a real challenge for every service provider with the evolution of their NDIS and you know, being able to capture all that really critical data to be able to analyse and understand business performance um, is still an evolving landscape of, you know, um, being able to do that effectively in an NDIS environment um, you know, there, there's some great benchmarking work that is happening, though, which is really helpful, I think, you know, across the industry to then start to build the skills and expertise and understanding of, you know, what are the KPIs that matter and how should you be managing your business? Absolutely. And, and the layer down from the, the kind of the level we're talking at is exact team dashboard, you know, fantastic. That, that's brilliant to be there. But in or again, to make that happen. For each of these areas of the business like again if I, look i do sales and marketing stuff so i think about crms right you know i feel like you have to have a combination of what actually is relevant in the ndis what's best practice in a corporate kind of mindset to make sales and marketing happen um you know so that so yeah the, the industry best practice strategy and then technical competency right because you know it, 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 it can't just be inside of a word document that we go oh this is our strategy you know, the, the, the CRM in that example needs to reflect uh, the fact that you've configured it that way, you know, so, so it just it's just flows, you know. So, yeah, it's about it's about having people that know their stuff in each area, isn't it? Yeah. And then you feed that up kind of thing. That's my distinction. Yeah. Um, forgive me. I'm very passionate. I told you. I warned you. I'm a geek. <laughs> I'm a too. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about lived experience. And um, look, I'm I'm a father of an NDIS participant. My son has autism. He's seven years old. So, like, as a dad, I I get to have a perspective of being, should we say, the customer? You know, being his representative nominee, um, which gives me, you know, an element of that sort of lived experience thing. Um, in order to work in the NDIS at any level. How important do you think it is for the individual 
you know, professional uh, to have either lived experience themselves or some kind of direct connection to lived experience. Yeah, I, I do think it's really important um, to have that deeper level of understanding of, you know, what it's what it's like, what supports are needed, um, uh, you know, to really be connected in with that purpose of the mm. organisation. Um, for, for me, um, my, my experience uh, is in relation to my father. He had motor neurons disease um, and that's he's also the, the reason why I shifted uh, my career from mining to uh, disability services. Um, what I saw with my father, we, we had no um, disability sort of exposure in my family prior to him um, getting diagnosed with MND and most people listening will probably know motor neurons disease is a degenerative disease where, you know, capacity is lost over time. Um, so he suffered with MND for two years. And, and during that time as his um, ability to, you know, look after himself independently was declining. My mother and my family, you know, were, really well supported by the Motor, Motor Neurons Disease Association in New South Wales and and the support that they provided um, and the expertise and understanding that they had that we knew nothing of was so mm. valuable and appreciated by my family. And it just got me thinking that, you know, there's, there's more to life than what I was doing at that point in time and, you know, how important is it that there are organisations that can, you know, support with that level of expertise and really help guide individuals with a disability and their broader, you know, family and support networks through unknown, uh, you know, uncharted waters and territory um, as to what they'll, you know, need to be focusing on and experiencing. And, yeah. and I think just having that personal connection to the value that is derived when, you know, service providers get it right um, and the joy that that mm. can bring to people. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, it certainly um, helps with that alignment to, the you know, the purpose of an organisation and making sure that everyone's really focused on what matters most and making sure that, you know, we deliver a, a quality service every time and, um yeah, I, mm. and I think people can get that um, connection in other ways, such mm. as doing things like I was talking about with, you know, buddy shifts and putting yourself, you know, experiencing what it's like. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I th certainly think for me, you know, my, my absolute driver of my passion is that experience that I had within my family. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, there's a potency in a very meaningful connection when it it's personal um and it is a very common story you know i got into disability because you know family member right um so and i do also very much agree with your point of it can happen through training and almost osmosis of being around uh, the sector um if it is the osmosis version i do think that it's crucial for providers to really you know select and pick staff that have got that um that coachability to really truly appreciate what it means and, and to have that emotional intelligence and, 
and, and nuance. Um, yeah, because if you don't have the direct personal connection, then yeah, I, I think you need to be the right personality type to, to kind of take it on. You can't see it as just a job. It's not just a job. Um, it's more than Absolutely that, isn't it? Not. Yeah. 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 And we, we recruit uh, strongly through values, you know, to try to identify those people. I think, you know, we all know it does take um, a, a special type of person mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, be an excellent support worker or mm-hmm. manager in this industry. And, yeah, and we, we find, yeah, really focusing on values through that recruitment process helps us to find, you know, the, the right staff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you. I um, appreciate the answer on that. Um, now, in terms of the outcomes of the Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability, um, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what what's your perspective of all of that? Yeah, it's um, certainly, yeah, it's been a massive uh, investment from the Australian public uh, over the last four years and and it's great to finally have the recommendations uh, out uh, for for everyone to consider. Um, And, yeah, I think, uh, I I wouldn't say there was anything surprising in the recommendations that came through uh, at Aruma. We obviously, like every other service provider followed um, the hearings and, uh, you know, sort of the uh, progress of the Royal Commission, you know, reviewed issues, papers and the like. So um, it is great that the recommendations are out there. And it's also um, great timing as well with the review of the NDIS that Bill Mm -hmm. Shorten's undertaking uh, with those findings coming out later in this month as well um, to be a real catalyst for change in the industry and and I guess what you know what we still need to be patient for is understanding you know which of the recommendations will government choose to implement and and you know some of the detail behind how that's going to happen um we as I mentioned we've been following really closely over the you know the duration of the royal commission Mm -hmm. um and taking the cues of, you know, what's being discussed and, and where we, we think those recommendations might fall. And, you know, some of the things that we're really focused on um, through those recommendations are, you know, thinking about how can we um, build those into our strategies moving forward. Um, some of the key areas uh, are around, you know, thinking about how do we bolster the autonomy of people mm-hmm. uh, with a disability through the services that we provide and, but more importantly, our practice as to making sure that we truly enable autonomy, um, you know, f- from that practice perspective. Um you know, c- complaints handling has been a, a key focus and, and introducing that element of redress that we saw through the, um, you know, the Child Sexual Abuse Royal Commission as well. And obviously there's no um, details around what that will look like um, moving forward. But mm. as the NDISC, you know, unpacks that, um, we're certainly reflecting on, on that in our organisation as well. Mm. But probably one of the biggest areas for us is recommendations around, you know, group homes being phased out. And, you know, that's certainly not a surprise because we've seen that through issues papers and um, been expecting that as a natural progression away from group homes. 
and we've been working on that for a number of years and particularly in our uh, ex-government transferred services. So I mentioned yep. we, we um, uh, took on uh, board some of those services and and what what we probably all know is that you know as people with a disability were you know moved from big institutions into group homes mm-hmm. they didn't have the ability to choose who they lived with and so we've been really focused on understanding our customers mm-hmm whether they like living where they're living, whether they like who they're living with and and really helping, we use the word reconfigure, but mm-hmm. moving customers to accommodation and to live with people who best, you know, who they want to live with. And mm-hmm. so I think that as a progression of work is, you know, for, for a rumour it's underway, but for across the industry it's something mm-hmm. that's going to take many years Um mm-hmm. And excitingly, there'll be all sorts of new models that come out of that as well to, you know, support people to live independently. Absolutely. And and I love the direction of that in terms of the, you know, move away from that. Here's the million dollar question, though. If you've got anything less than one to one or two to one, right, you've got one to two, one to three, one to four. How do you move away from it? How do you logistically make that happen if there's not funding? Like I know there are, I've seen models, for example, of concierge style, apartment style buildings where you can have apartment, 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 one support worker goes between them. I think it's great. Many providers are leading the way on just doing that. I think that's lovely. But that only works if the support needs, you know, accommodate for that, basically. Like you might, the support worker that say, you know, allocated to three participants they very much might need to be in the in the actual physical proximity of all three at the same time to support them. Um, so like, gosh, any thoughts on that? Like what, what do you reckon the impact's going to be there? It's like, okay, we've away from group homes, but what about the support ratios and the funding? Yeah, and the overall financial viability of the scheme is, yeah, mm. the ultimate question. Um, and I think, yeah, it's about... Um, about trying to marry up all those different <laughs> components to sure. get to what is a good outcome for the individual in a financially sustainable way. Um, you know, we find like there's no one model that's going to suit everyone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes people want to live together <laughs> and and that's okay. Like that, that's mm. totally fine. And, um, you know, and in those environments, you know, if there's three people living together, they choose to live together. Like we've got some great success stories of, um, you know, young men kind of meeting each other and becoming really great mates and, um, you know, and then deciding to move in and, um, share a home together. You know, so there is that whole, what is this stage of life? What are your objectives? And um, and making sure that the models sort of can adapt to the different stages of life that people are in and the different, you know, wants and needs. Um, it's certainly not an easy question that you're asking, though, in terms of, you know, yeah. what if everyone decided they wanted to live alone and needed mm-hmm. one-to-one support and... Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? Mm. I just don't think we'll find ourselves in that drastic situation because humans are social in nature and, um, you know, that ability to live with um, other people that are your friends and also the informal supports that, Mm. um, you know, are also being explored through the NDIA around, um, 
you know, the, I guess it's almost unfunded supports of people with a disability living with friends and other, you know, able-bodied people that can provide informally some of those supports too. And I think, you know, with no one, I imagine, has the answer as to how Mm. is it all going to work moving forward. But it's those kind of innovations and, you know, working on different models and, yep. and seeing how it can operate that's, you know, going to help us get to meeting all of those challenges and outcomes. Absolutely. I think the individualised living options, the ILO model as well, is something mm-hmm. to watch this space on. And I think would be get people will increasingly get a bit more familiar with it because I think it's fair to say that a lot of providers don't really understand, you know, what ILO actually is and what does it mean, et cetera. So, you know, totally agree it's going to be a shifting landscape. I think that the NDIS is almost like the housing market and the raw, you know, the RBA. We need to have forward guidance as much as possible because it is a marketplace. Um, you know, there are commercial and operational impacts. Um, you know, people need to be able to plan, don't they? Um, so, um, look, hats off to Bill Shorten. He's doing a great job, I think, about, you know, all those types of things. So, but this has been fascinating. I've loved this conversation. Um, I wish we had more time. <laughs> um, but um, but Tiffany, um, for any kind of smaller providers out there, and you know, wanting to to scale, um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What would be your one one pearl of wisdom you'd say for the smaller smaller people that are you know scaling? They're just starting out. They're at the first million or two million. You know, for, for with your kind of COO hat, uh, what would be your pearl of wisdom that you'd give uh, to those types of providers? Probably the the key to success is always going to be around delivering a really high quality service that your customers love you for. Uh, And and with that will come, um, you know, word of mouth growth uh, and, you know, definitely as you try to grow, making that economies of scale as well in in the way you structure your organisation is critical too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I totally agree. And then it's it's good to have that clear focal point, you know, because otherwise we can go off down the wrong the wrong rabbit hole, so to speak. You know, focus on that and the right systems, the right people will will come because you're focusing on service. Um, yeah. yeah, fantastic. Well, Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Roxburgh from um, from Aruma, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, my name's Chris Hall. This is the Peak Provider NDIS podcast. And if you're interested in scaling your business, please check out peakprovider.com.au for a series of sales and marketing services and events. Tiffany, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. All the best.